Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll continue and update our discussion of the murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho, and some New York City cases that we've had and we've investigated that have some of the same issues and controversies. Okay, guys, what do you got? Pat, when I look at the Idaho murders of four young students, and you see the main concerns with this case are that you're hearing from the parents and that you're hearing from the public, the communication between the law enforcement entity and the public and the law enforcement entity and the family. Number one complaint is the amount of time that it's taking to solve this case. What the public doesn't know is there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of forensic evidence that has to be processed. You're talking DNA from the scene, hundreds of pieces of items that have to be processed. The DNA on the bodies, DNA from the fingernails, DNA from the clothing on the bodies. So there's a lot of different forensic evidence that has to be processed in addition to suspects that have to be spoken to. There's different working theories that they're looking at, and you have a lot of different personnel coming together working on this investigation. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And it reminds me of a case that we had in New York City a few years ago. It was almost the same type of case in that there was a young girl murdered. She was jogging. She never came home that day. Her parents were concerned. They go out there and one of her family members ended up finding her dead along the jogging path. That case took a while to solve. And it took the investigators in different directions. I mean, it was like a roller coaster of emotions going through that investigation. They worked really hard on that case. They worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week to solve it. But in the beginning of the investigation, it was somewhat like the Idaho murders where the family members weren't certain that the killer would be found, he would be identified. They weren't sure about how the investigation was going. The public were concerned there's a killer out there. Are there family members and friends in harm's way with this person out there? Is this person going to strike again? Is he going to murder somebody else? A lot of similarities. And we should discuss that case because I think the people that are involved with the Idaho murder case that are following it so closely, I think they'll have an appreciation for the way that this case ended up. Yeah, Bill, I remember the case you're talking about, and there are definite similarities between these two cases. Very high profile. And there's something here that I'll refer to. It's kind of a psychological thing that goes on. Uh, you know, I'll refer to it as the murder of the innocents. There's nothing bad about them. Young students doing nothing negative and uh, just gets murdered. So people tend to be more empathetic and they can connect more with that victim and the family on a personal level, as opposed to like a drug dealer murder or, or a gang murder. Any murder is terrible, but people tend to connect with them a little different when what I'll call the murder of the innocents. And for a lot of reasons, it scares people. The purpose is still out there, like you said. Who's he going to hit next? It drives their need to know who and why. They want to make some sense of it in their own head because at the end of the day, it means it could happen to any of them or any of their loved ones. And the press is a big part of that too. Now, the press provides a service by letting the people in the community know what's going on with the investigation. But there's a profit motive here too. And if there's controversy, it sells more papers, sells more airtime. And sometimes that's a problem, how they portray things. And in today's uh, day and age, fact and objectivity doesn't seem to be a mainstay of the media. So all of that together in this case in Idaho, 
the same issues and controversies came up in that case you're referring to uh, in New York. I think a lot of people look at that case in Idaho, look at the case that we're about to discuss in New York, and they say that could have been my daughter, could have been a family member of my own. And they associate that with a personal uh, level of emotion. Reminds me of the old statement, if it bleeds, it leads. So both these uh, situations, they're unprovoked attacks. And I think that's what really hits home to a lot of people. There's uh, visual aids that draw its attention to the case. The case that you're talking about in, in New York City, we spent a lot of time on it. Uh, we were there for weeks. The investigation went on for months. And we were in the same position. It was, uh, it was very difficult. There was no video. There was no ear witnesses. There was no eyewitnesses. The incident happened at sunset, so it was getting darker. And there was nobody around. It was in a, uh, a desolate park with a lot of high brush, and everything was hidden. So it was really, really a difficult situation, and there's a lot of similarities between both the Idaho murder and this murder we're talking about as far as the, uh, the situation uh, and the incident. But we were there for a long time, and in the end, there was a lot of good work from the detectives. They didn't give up, and I think that's the key here, is just not giving up, committing all your resources, committing your time to the investigation, and eventually we prevailed. The role of the boss is huge here in this, and I remember your people from uh, the Forensic Investigations Division had a mammoth job here. I mean, they literally cut down a forest to find the evidence. We used uh, over 100 investigators, police officers, uh, Parks Department, FBI, for many days, uh, we cut down all the shrubs in the area, we cut down all the brush, uh, and we were very successful in, in the line searches. We wound up finding the uh, victim's shoe and the victim's uh, headbuds, and it looked like the perp had wrapped the headbuds, the apple headbuds, around his hand, and he launched it. And that, uh, that proved uh, very successful at the end, because we wound up getting uh, DNA off of those headbuds. Bingo, DNA to the rescue again. It took about six months. Detectives eventually found the uh, right suspect. They took his sample and it matched. It matched not only the uh, DNA off the headbuds, but it also matched saliva off of her body. During the attack, he left his saliva on her body. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things that jumps out to me is uh, in both of these cases is the role of the boss. In a case like this, the boss's role is huge. And the biggest thing he does to aid the investigation is to provide a buffer between the detectives who are actually doing the gumshoe work and the politics and the press and the pressure to solve the case quickly. Better to solve it right than to solve it quickly. And a good detective boss knows how to do that. So for me, and, and I'm sure you guys, we had priorities. We weren't running down individual leads. We were coordinating the whole investigation. So the first thing you do is keep the police commissioner informed, because if he's informed, he's not going to be adding to that pressure. You're going to manage the press. And by manage the press, I don't mean like what a, a public information officer would do. I mean, make sure that what's going out, you want to go out and make sure that what you don't want to leak out doesn't leak out. And then the last part is you got to protect those detectives from that immense pressure to solve the case quickly. We want to solve it right, not solve it quickly. And also keep them uh, insulated from the politics that goes on. You know, everybody wants to get involved and have a say, 
But the experts are the detectives with the boots on the ground. The detectives will chase down leads. The supervisor has working theories where he'll give direction to these detectives. But the most important thing is that that supervisor keeps emotions out of the way. A lot of times emotions build up. It's a case where a young person is murdered. It's a horrible crime. You get emotions inside of you because you have a daughter, you have a sister, you have a wife, and you associate that with your own personal feelings. And the best thing that the supervisor can do is keep the emotions detached. Detach yourself from the emotions of the case and think objectively in solving it. And again, those working theories are important. You need to assign detectives to different areas. You'll have detectives collecting DNA. You'll have detectives collecting video. And on this case in New York City, there was a lot of different areas that you could enter that jogging path, that park area. And there were detectives out there looking for video over miles of area. After so many months, they're coming up with nothing. No suspects. On a case like this, you would look at anybody that was the closest to this individual. So you would look at boyfriends, ex-boyfriends. You would even look at family members. You need to look at everybody as a possible Everybody. Suspect. And on a big case where there's a lot of emotions involved, it gets very difficult when you're an investigator and you start to question people that cared for this person that was murdered. And you're questioning them in a way that you're doing your job. And you need to do that. I think at the end of the day, the family member will have a true appreciation for doing a thorough job. On this case, they did just that. They start at who had access to that park, who had a gripe with this young girl, who would benefit from her being dead. They looked at all the different angles and it took months. And every time they went down a certain path, they hit a brick wall. And then also on that body is the clothing, the earbuds in the area. And you want to try to see how can I get DNA from the murderer? And in this case, they were very successful, but that takes a lot of time to try to come up with that DNA. On this case, there was DNA they got from the earbuds. That DNA profile right. from the earbuds, was it a full profile where they could put it into CODIS and it came back negative in CODIS? Or was That's it a exactly partial where you needed to do a one-to-one? and you needed to obtain DNA exemplars from people. I believe it was a full profile and it came back negative in CODIS. We had uh, a lieutenant who uh, a couple of weeks prior had seen a uh, suspicious guy in the neighborhood. I believe it was a Sunday and he called uh, the local precinct. They stopped the suspect. They took his information down, but he wasn't doing anything at the time. So they released him to let him go from the scene. The lieutenant, a few months after the incident, remembered that situation and went back to that information that the uh, the sector had taken down. And they wound up getting a, uh, a sample from the suspect. Once the suspect's sample and the uh, evidence scene was compared, it was a uh, full profile. The actual stop of the suspect happened way prior to the actual murder. And it was through the good work of that patrol officer taking down the information on that stop. He had no probable cause to arrest that suspect for anything, but he took that information down and recorded it like he was supposed to, which enabled them after the murder happened to then go back and look at this individual and say, look at his criminal record. He looks like he could be possible of something like this. We're not sure. But let's go try to get a DNA sample from him and see if it matches. So by that time, they already had the profile. And bingo, they go, they get the sample, and sure enough, it matches. One of the things that jumps out to me also is the importance. You kept talking about the emotion of the investigation. Sometimes detectives get invested into their own leads and what they think happened. And so one of the things that's the most important is the coordination of the investigation and that it goes in a methodical, uh, almost scientific manner. 
because there's something that has to be guarded against, and that's confirmation bias. If the detectives investigating the case have a theory, you have to guard against the fact that everything they do and think going forward in the case is going to tend to confirm that theory. It's called confirmation bias. And it's one of the things as a detective boss, you really have to be on point looking out for because it could take you down a bad road and you waste a lot of time and resources. And at the end, you don't get the right guy. It's called tunnel so that, vision. That's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that came into play in that case a little too, as it does in every case. They learned that from a old homicide lieutenant who always said to avoid that. Stay away from the tunnel vision. To kill him. But, uh, no, pun, no pun intended. One other interesting fact that happened, the only possible witness they had uh, immediately following the homicide was a truck driver who was driving eastbound on the Bell Parkway who saw a male exiting the bike path around the time the killer would probably be leaving. And he crossed the Bell Parkway and he headed in the northbound direction. They couldn't figure out if there was actually the perp or not. He didn't witness anything. He just saw a possible male crossing the Bell Parkway. Uh, when they run, ran this suspect, he actually lived in the buildings towards the direction that individual was walking towards. Bad guys are out there every day. They're out there at night. The probability of them being stopped at some point by just a, a uniform cop driving by is very high. We collect their information. Later on down the road, when he does something, it helps the investigation. It solved many, many cases. Yeah, if you think about it, this case and almost every other case that I can think of comes down to the basics. In this case, you had good old-fashioned patrol work. Stop question a suspect that was uh, acting suspiciously. Not enough to arrest him for anything, but you do the paper, you record the name. Later on, comes back, he might fit what we might think of as someone who may have committed this crime. And then you add to it the, the science, the forensics, and we have a DNA profile. And between the patrol work, the forensics works, you have the detective work that's putting those two things together, which lets you arrive at your suspect. You have the name, you do the, the detective does the research, says, hey, maybe he could have did this. And then you have the forensics that identify a profile. When the detectives put it all together, bingo, you got your guy. And when I look at the Idaho case and I see a small police department, and then I'm listening to you, Pat, explain how the experience of senior investigators, the calmness and the manner of which they conduct their investigations. And the lead investigator in Idaho may be the hardest working law enforcement officer. He may be a really intelligent individual, but with only two, three, four years experience, never having a murder before, I think it would have been wiser to select somebody that, you know, some more experience, experience handling a murder, because there's so many different aspects of an investigation that they have to deal with. Not only the forensic evidence, the video evidence, suspects, interrogating suspects, you're dealing with prosecutors, you're dealing with the law. And How do you know? Maybe, that, maybe he is the most experienced in that police department. It's a pretty small police department. True. And from what I hear from the police captain and the police chief there, they're saying they're running the investigation. But what they should be doing is running it as a supervisor. Coordinating. Coordinating. Exactly. Being the buffer for that detective so he's not being affected by the pressure from the press, from outside agencies, from within his own agency to come to a quick conclusion. And at this point in the Idaho case which also happened in our case that we're, we're talking about in Brooklyn, the challenge is to keep them motivated over a long period of time. And just about any case, if you can keep people motivated and excited about solving it, 
and have this this idea that they're never going to give up until they solve it. That's the challenge at this point because it's gone on for a while and you can only keep up that kind of a pace for a short period of time. So you really have to keep them motivated. It really is an adrenaline rush when you have a lead and it's panning out and you're like, this is it. This is the person that that's the murderer. This is the one that I've been looking for. It is an incredible adrenaline rush that you feel because it gives closure to the family and you're ensuring that there's a successful prosecution the way that you built that case up. And again, I think it's an injustice. It's not fair to that police officer in Moscow not having the experience with the pressure that's put on him. Look, in New York City, we call them white shields. They're police officers that go into the detective squad. They have to do 18 months in a detective squad, and then they get their detective shield. And even with that, we have to make sure that they learn all of the ways that an investigation is conducted before they'll take on a murder investigation as the lead investigator. Usually, you'll assign somebody with a lot more experience to those murders. And a big case like this, where every little detail is looked at under the microscope, not only from the defense attorney when you do arrest somebody, you have the prosecutor making sure that you have more than probable cause. Although you just need probable cause to make an arrest, they want more than probable cause on cases like this. So you make sure that you have the right person that you're arresting. And then now you have the social media. I mean, everybody's looking at this case. Ordinary people seem to get invested personally in the outcome of the case. They're very empathetic because it's an everyday person that got murdered for what apparently is no reason. That's one of the things when it goes on for a period of time, you have to manage that. People are going to do some crazy things and try to get involved. And that happened in our case too. So that's another thing that has to be managed. That goes along with managing the press. And as we always say, the family has to be taken care of. Not only that, you have uh, more cases coming in every day in New York. Somebody else dies. If you catch another big case... Now you're going to start dedicating your resources to the new case. So yeah, so again, uh, again, that comes down to the boss, the detective boss, and the coordination. Because at this point in, in a big case like this, what you're going to do is you're going to form a task force, and you're going to take those detectives off what we call the catching routine. They're not going to catch any new cases. You're going to dedicate a group of detectives that are just going to work this case, and they're not going to be catching any other homicides or any other cases at all until this case is solved. And actually, that's what we did in this case out in Queens. Uh, we put a task force together. And I think, I don't want to speak on your behalf, Chris, but I think the Forensic Investigations Division also had a task force so they could not be burdened with other cases. The people who are working on this case were dedicated specifically to this case. I remember he's had a, a big command post truck out at the scene for a long time. Yeah. Like I said, we were out there for a few weeks. The FBI, the uh... Uh, different various units within the police department helped us out there. At some point, you're going to dedicate your resources to it, but you know, at some point, more cases do keep coming in. And they all deserve the same attention. No, exactly. A murderer, a murderer is a murder. Those detectives are speaking for the dead. It doesn't matter if you're a poor homeless person who's murdered or a jogger who has you know some resources and a family. It doesn't matter to that detective. He wants to solve them both. Right. One thing, uh, it's in our favor in New York. Um, we have murders every day, uh, and the investigators, whether it's the squad investigators or the crime scene investigators, that's all they do. You have your homicide, homicide squad. squad. That's all they do. They've probably made mistakes in the past. They learn from their mistakes, and they don't make it again. And even if you are a new investigator, there's more senior investigators. We have second-grade detectives, first-grade detectives who have the experience, and they guide you properly. And as a team, collectively, you accomplish the goal. You accomplish identifying the suspect, and then you, you pick them up. And then even after you pick them up, 
even more skill comes in place is to try to get a confession out of them. It's, it's a multifaceted um, investigation. Yeah. Experience is something you can't buy. That's something that, you know, you have to develop over time. I love watching these experienced detectives in the box and the box is the interrogation room. When they get in the box with a suspect, you feel like that's the guy. That's the guy, a woman that committed this murder. And they were in there and the way they worked them, it's just amazing watching the experienced investigator go at that person. You know, how are they going to go at them? They're going to go straight on or are they going to dabble around the issue and let them just spill their guts? It's something that I think anyone watching would be fascinated about it, especially in this day and age of crime series, these shows on TV where you see people solving crimes and there's such an interest in it. When it's done well, Bill, it's like watching an opera. It's like watching a piece of art being performed in front of your eyes. And that's something, like I said, experienced. It's developed over years. And the guys that are the best at it, you know who they are. All you have to do is say, hey, do you like this guy for it? And they'll give you a look and you'll know. So guys, any closing thoughts here about uh, these two investigations that we discussed today? Yeah, just like the New York case, when you look at the similarities of the Idaho case and the New York case that we just was going through, time and patience will pay off. I look at Idaho, the Moscow Police Department, and you see personnel-wise, they don't have a lot of personnel, but they do have the help of the state police. They do have the help of the FBI. When you're listening to them up at the podium, they seem very confident with the information they have. I think they have a lot more than they're leading on to. I think they're also banking on a lot of the DNA evidence coming back. Who knows? They may have developed a partial DNA profile already. They may have developed a full profile that is just not hitting CODIS yet. But I think time will pay off, and I think this case will be solved. In just about every other case, uh, you have to know when to have patience to make the case go. And you have to know when to give people a push to make the case go. And the value is in knowing the difference. Yeah, I think with uh, science and technology today, they ultimately will prevail. One strong thing we have today is social media. Every little bit about this case is pumped out to all ages, probably the whole world. Uh, eventually, somebody is going to know something and say something, and they'll, and they'll put it together. It, it will happen. It's just going to take time. Our listeners could uh, watch our TikToks. Um, as new information comes up, we'll, we'll update the TikToks. But I think eventually they will prevail in this case. I agree. The case is going to go. And that's that. Thanks for joining us for this hot topic on Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.